please open it to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. We're back uh, in Ephesians for the foreseeable future. And uh, to just to give you a, a brief refresher, Ephesians 1 is basically a huge long prayer of Paul on behalf of the Ephesians. We get this rich description of God's sovereignty over calling his people, the blessings he gives us, the power that is at work in us because of Christ. Uh, who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And, and now Paul is transitioning. He's, he's done with praying, and he's speaking to the Ephesians, and he starts them off by reminding them of who they once were. And so that is what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is. It's a reminder, it's a description of what our lives were like before Christ saved us and what the lives of people are like who have not been saved by Christ, who have not yet heard the gospel or responded to it. So draw your attention, please, to the reading of God's word, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's pray. Lord, uh, these, these are kind of hard words at a hopeful time of year, words that uh, some of us don't want to hear, rem being reminded of what our lives were like before being saved, what our lives were like apart from your son. We don't want to think about it, and yet we're being reminded, we're being asked to think about it and ponder it by the Apostle Paul as he asked the Ephesians to think about and ponder it millennia ago. Be with us, Lord, as we walk through this text, that we would see the importance of what you are saying to us and reminding us of who we once were, and so that we can understand deeply the weight of our sinfulness, and so that we can more glory and boast in the power of your salvation. It's the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So I'm going to do the stereotypical opening pastor illustration at New Year's, and that is it's going to be about New Year's resolutions because everybody makes them, or you know, maybe you wrote them down, maybe you thought about them in your head. Maybe you're like, the last time I had New Year's resolutions was going into 2020, and we all know how that year turned out, so I'm not doing resolutions anymore. But one of the things that's interesting about New Year's resolutions is it's basically projecting how we would like to be because of the way we were in the previous year, right? So like one of the classic New Year's resolutions is to lose weight. I've met very few fit people who have that as a New Year's resolution. I have it as a New Year's resolution because I have gained significant weight over the past two years and would like to, you know, thin out a little bit or just be healthier. People want to eat healthier because they're reminded of all the junk they ate over the previous year. And so they, you know, do the Mediterranean diet. They do the low-carb diet. I have, I've never heard of this one, but I'm sure Jonathan would love it. There's something called the carnivore diet where all you eat Every meal is just red meat. No greens, no carbs, just meat. 
Uh, I got a friend that's posting about it. He's very excited. I'm interested to see how he's doing six months from now. But we create these resolutions because there was something about the way we were that needed to be changed. There was something about our previous life that is no longer sustainable or no longer desirous. And that is what Paul is talking about here. I mean, he basically had been doing this really great build up encouraging prayer to the Ephesians. I mean, he remind, just to remind you as he reminded them I mean, previously, he's talking about how they were you know, called from the beginning before the foundations of the world. God called you to be part of Christ. And he's bestowed all this lavish mercy and blessings on you. I mean, the Ephesians are probably feeling really great about themselves. And he talks about wisdom that, that Christ has given them and revelation of knowledge and this inheritance that is theirs because of Christ. And then, and this was huge as we ended the, the series before we broke for Advent, in verse 19 of chapter 1, he said, The power that was at work in raising Christ from the dead is the power at work which has raised you from death to life. And so the Ephesians are feeling really good, but they have a New Year's resolution that Paul pops them in the mouth with. The whole reason they needed salvation is because of how dead they were before Christ, how enslaved to sin they were before Christ, and how they were destined to a dreadful fate before Christ. So as we go through this text, I'm going to start with just a, a preliminary observation, and then I'm going to move into an alliteration, three Ds. We were dead, we were deceived, and we were destined. Those are going to be my three points. But the, the first observation is this, and that is this passage is referring to all people everywhere. For believers, this refers to our past. That's why it's in the past tense to begin with. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. You are no longer walking in these things. You are no longer dead in these things if you are, and we'll get to this next week in verse 5, alive to Jesus Christ. So this is true of the believer's past. But it's also uh, referring to unbelievers' present and future apart from Christ. Uh, St. Augustine, one of the great church fathers uh, in history, had a, a great line about the significance of, of salvation in, in sainthood and, and Christian life and, and what it means to sinners. And he said, there's no saint without a past, and there's no sinner without a future. All of us have some type of of past. All of us at one point were sinners enslaved to sin who have a future. There is n grace does not have a limit. It can save the most pious of people, at least if they think they're pious, and the most dreadful, murderous maniac like St. Paul. This also means that for believers, this is true whether, and I guess I kind of just said this, but true whether you rebelled and strayed far, far away from God, or it's also true if you are baptized on the eighth day out of the hospital, confessed faith at a young age. You cannot remember a day when you weren't consciously following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. All of this is still true about you. Dead means dead. You once were dead apart from Christ. You once were enslaved to these passions and things we'll go through apart from Christ. There's a thing that can happen in the church, and I grew up kind of in this tradition. We'd have these guest speakers come into the church 
and they'd have these powerful testimonies. I remember being at a youth conference and there was an Irish man who came and gave, uh, he was a big evangelist over in Europe and he came and shared his testimony. I mean, he joined the uh, Irish Republican Army, which is a terrorist organization. Uh, he had murdered people. He had done bombings. I mean, he was, he was bad. And then he talked about the salvation he experienced in Jesus Christ, this conversion, how he, he gave that all up and pursued, you know, a life of, of ministry and peace building in Ireland. And I was, I mean, I was blown away by this. It was, it was absolutely amazing. But you can end up thinking, I need a testimony as shocking as that for, to have value in God, to have that you know, much powerful of a testimony or something. I need, to be, I need to be really, really awful before I can have a really amazing testimony of Jesus Christ's work in my life. But I've actually never met somebody that has done really bad things, that has rebelled really far, that has ran as far away as you could from God, who has ever thought of that about somebody else. Usually when I've kind of talked with people like that, they, they share something along the lines of, do you know how amazing it is that somebody lived faithfully for that long? What kind of graces they must have experienced? What kind of faithfulness God had to them and that they're still going? I mean, that's an amazing testimony. So let's not be envious of testimonies, but be shared in, in our support and honor and praising of what Christ does in our lives. Whether, again, we were completely rebellious and wild and the Lord draws us in, or we cannot remember the date that we were saved because we have always been part of the church and confessed faith. But that's for believers. This is still part of my observations. For unbelievers, this means uh, that if you, you know, if you donate uh, your salary to feed the hungry, if you volunteer your time at a local shelter, if you treat your spouse kindly, if you try to raise children to be ethical human beings, if you do tons of good things and people say things like, you're such a nice person, oh, you're so great, you're so wonderful, however good they might think they are, this passage says the same thing. They are dead in trespasses and sins apart from Christ. Dead means dead. So with that, we go on to our three Ds. The first is that we were dead. Death is a, a popular metaphor in Greek philosophy and is used similarly in the New Testament at times to refer to those who are more morally or spiritually deficient. Jesus called the move actually from unbelief to belief in him as a change from death to life. And here Paul is using it, though, to refer to the actual penalty that is due to us because of sin. This penalty actually starts here now with our separation and alienation from God, right? We, we need to be reconciled from God. If we are dead in our sins, it means that God's holiness and wrath is targeted right at us. And so we are separated from him. And, that, and we can experience that in this life and it will continue on with us into eternity. And then Paul goes on about how we are dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins. This two-pronged approach captures the entire spectrum of sin, right? Transgression is basically a false step or a crossing of a boundary. And sin is usually describing an archer missing his bullseye or falling short of some type of standard. Together, they cover the, the active and passive acts, aspects of wrongdoing, what we often call 
sins of omission or commission. One of the confessions that we sometimes recite together is, Father, forgive us for the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone. Part of the Sabbath, uh, or not Sabbath laws, but part of the Levitical laws actually covered that. If you see a, a neighbor struggling with their oxen or something like that that's fallen into a ditch and you decide to just pass them by, I'm not going to help them out, you know, I, I got things to do, that's, that's a sin of omission. You could have done something and you refused not to. So all these things point towards the fact that we are without excuse, as Paul says. None of us measure up to God's standard. We have all fallen short of that mark, or we all knowingly cross the line against God's commandments. We are dead. And this got me thinking of The Princess Bride, partly because I was talking to the girls about it. It is by far one of my favorite movies growing up. It's also a great book. But if you remember Billy Crystal's memorable performance as Miracle Max, uh, you'll remember this scene, and that's when they bring, uh, Indigo Montoya brings Wesley, our hero, who's appearing to be dead, and he brings him to the miracle worker, Miracle Max, and he lays him on the table, and he's like, you know, is there anything to be done for him? He's dead. And Billy Crystal kind of laughs at him as Miracle Max and says, whoa, 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 there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is still slightly alive. With all dead, well... Well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. And Indigo Montoya says, well, what's that? And Miracle Max replies, go through his clothes and look for loose change. All dead means there is no help. Mostly dead, you're still slightly alive. You could be assisted in some way. So is Paul saying here that we're mostly dead or that we're all dead and the only thing left is for people to look through our pockets for change? It's, it's all dead. We are not drowning, we are drowned apart from Christ. We are not, I think I've used this uh, illustration before, we are not, you know, excited about the fact that we grab onto the life preserver and then when we get hauled aboard to safety out of the troubled waters, we're telling everybody, did you see how I was able to grab onto that life preserver? No, we're praising the champion of the person who threw the preserver, dragged you up out of it, and saved you. We are completely dead apart from Christ. But if it's because of sins and transgressions, whose fault is it? Is it something within us? Is it somebody else's fault? What's going on? So Paul kind of lays out here that we are being deceived, and we're deceived in a number of ways. The first one is that we are deceived through the world. That's what he says following the course of this world in verse 2. The world in the New Testament is usually depicted as wicked and evil. Not, to be clear, not God's good created world, all right? God does not create junk, and he doesn't create ugly things. He has gifted us with an absolutely gorgeous home to call home, to call our home. He's given us, given us the world. That's not what the New Testament authors are thinking about. And we, if you remember way back to when we were going through First John, this was something that we talk about a lot because John in 1 John is constantly warning the believers about the world. 1 John 2 says, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, 
but whoever does the will of God abides forever. James said that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So if you are a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. The world here is, is a belief and value system. It's things that are an active rebellion against God and are meant to draw your affections, your desires, your delight in God away from him and focus in worshiping on things that are created, that are secondary. So for those of us who are dead in sin and who were dead in sin and those of us who do not know Jesus Christ as their savior, their values and beliefs are shaped by the world. And we can feel this in our current cultural moment. We can see it most profoundly right now in the absolute confusion of sexuality and gender and the pressure to accept uh, statements that are seemingly in the news all the time that men can be women and women can be men. I just saw that Jeopardy has announced that they're uh, the first and most successful winningest female champion. The problem is, is it's not a female. It is a man who is now identifying as a woman. And if you speak against it, like I am doing right now, and you speak against it on Twitter or on Facebook or Instagram, you are harangued and attacked and viewed as bigoted because the world, that's the value, is accept people's truth as the truth. And your truth cannot be true if it speaks against their truth. And so it leads actually to confusion. But we see it in politics and economics as companies advertise less of their merchandise and more of their political opinions, thus sending you a message that if you want to wear or use our products, it's only for those people who agree with our politics. And we see it in the arts, whether it's TV, music, film, painting. The world hates truth and will silence those who speak it. And apart from Christ, that is what we are doing. We are following the way the world wants us to live. Two interesting examples of how this is affecting us uh, came to mind. It's been 20 years since the first Harry Potter movie premiered. Now, it is one of the rare instances where the film adaptations are as beloved as the books. Now, leading up to this really big event, HBO is running a special series called Return to Hogwarts. The cast, directors, creators uh, behind it, everyone is going to gather together and they're going to discuss the film's uh, legacy and significance. Uh, everyone that is, except the creator and author of the Harry Potter books, J.K. Rowling, she is not allowed to be at the event. She wasn't invited, will not be there to speak on it, because J.K. Rowling is, has tweeted and has spoken about and against transgenderism. And so because of that, because she has taken a stand about the distinction between women as women and men as men, she has been canceled by the culture, which is absolutely shocking. The reason I thought of her is because Rawlings is not a believer, nor is she, you know, some politically or socially conservative person. She actually has a lot of values that follow the world, but she's transgressed this one. And so the course of the world says you can't be part of this. You can't be one of us. The world deceives people into thinking that wrong is right and right is wrong. The other, other illustration I thought of this is a cautionary tale for us as believers. In the 1950s, it was still not uncommon to see a famous pastor or theologian on the cover of Times Magazine. To give you an idea, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, Richard Niebuhr, uh, Karl Barth, Paul Tillich. Now, these were not evangelicals, but they were pastors and theologians featured on Times Magazine's covers. 
uh, when Billy Graham really blew up in the 60s and 70s. He was featured a few different times on Times Magazine. Even as late as like the 80s, maybe even early 90s, you could find uh, big time news outlets or institutions still honoring or asking pastors and theologians to come and offer prayers during dark times or speak into certain cultural or political moments because they were valued. Think about everyone after the 9-11 attacks and the people that flooded churches. I mean, books were written just based off of sermons preached in pulpits the Sunday following that attack. There was a value that the world still kind of had, in some sense, to Christianity. All of that is completely gone now. And you can actually see this by uh, an example of something that happened to Tim Keller. A lot of us know Tim Keller, PCA pastor, uh, huge church planter, started a whole church planting movement across the world, and he kind of fit this description. Multiple books in the New York Times, wrote for big, big-time news outlets, continues to write in big-time news outlets like The Atlantic. He even used to be invited to speak at venues like Harvard and Google and other notable cultural institutions. All of that changed a few years ago when he won an award called the Kuiper Prize. And the uh, giving of the award and the hosting of it was going to be at Princeton Seminary, which is part of the PCUSA. So they announced this, and within one week, they took the award back, canceled the event, and said that Tim Keller would just come and give a talk to any interested students. The blowback from both the right and the left was massive. The Washington Post covered the story, and the author of the, the story put, put it this way. This was the shock about Princeton inviting somebody like Tim Keller. The author wrote, how could an institution committed to full inclusion of women and LGBT people in ministry give a prize and $10,000 to someone who very publicly wasn't? Indeed, how could the Presbyterian Church USA's flagship graduate school honor a minister in a different Presbyterian church, the Presbyterian Church in America, a denomination founded partly in opposition to the PCUSA's decision to ordain women, end quote. Brief factual error there. The PCUSA did not exist when the PCA was founded. The PCUSA, or the PCA formed out of the PCUS, which didn't ordain women at the time. That wasn't the issue. The issue was in the PCUS, there was rampant liberalism, like men denying that Jesus was the son of God, physically resurrected from the dead, will return uh, in the future to judge the sinners and the saints. So now Keller handled the situation by all accounts really, really well. He said, let's forget about the prize and I'll, I'll be the one to just come and give a talk. But if one of the most winsome, widely read evangelicals of our time could be so easily canceled by an institution that claims the title of Christian and cancel them because of values uh, that the institution claims to have that could run contrary to the word of God, what, what does this mean for us as Christians today? Our relevance in a, this culture is over. The world has passed us by. We are no longer a thought on their radar other than the ways that we offend them. So that means the people that are coming to the church forward, other than the ones that are born into it, baptized into it, nurtured into it, discipled in it, are growing up in that culture, one that just doesn't care about us. And so as they are exposed to the gospel, we have to be mindful of this is where they're coming from. They are following the course of this world. 
But there's something else that's going on here. We're not just deceived by the world, right? The world's not just deceived on its own. It has somebody, some being actively trying to deceive it. And that is the deceiver and liar. We're deceived by the power and influence of the prince of the power of the air, is what Paul calls him. Now, many commentators over the centuries believe that this is referring to Satan. In fact, he's given titles really similar to this elsewhere in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians, Paul calls Satan the god of this world. In John, John calls him the ruler of this world. He's the great deceiver, tempter, destroyer. And under his service is a host of demons. Paul shows us here that it is not only dark spirits under his control, but, but wicked humans, right? This is describing people that are following this deception. They follow the world, and they're following the prince of the power of the air. And this is odd language about air, but just to, it's mainly referring to just what we were talking about in chapter 1, heavenly places. These are beings, this prince of the air, we can't actually see him, but it is no less real, and he is no less at work in the world. So now this prince is at work, and the work shows itself as being at work in the sons of disobedience. They are the offspring of disobedience, as real physical children are the offspring of their parents. It's part of their nature to be disobedient and rebellious. One commentator adds one additional remark about the nature of this disobedience. You know, we think of disobedience as don't do this, and then they do it, and they've disobeyed or do this and they don't do it and they've disobeyed there's another element going on here and he says that implied in this disobedience is unbelief a refusal to place confidence in someone or something these sons of disobedience are sons of disobedience because of their unbelief and they're headed towards becoming children of wrath which is where we're going in the text so how is Satan at work in the sons of disobedience? That's what Paul's saying here. The course of the, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So how is he at work? He deceives like he did to Eve. One of the great sorrows of facing the church today in America is celebrating the, the deconstruction of faith and people having painful stories about things that have happened in church. But more often than not, it's people that begin them to just want something out of the world and not the creator of the world. They're tired of people looking at them funny when they mention Jesus, the Bible, holiness, justice, mercy, grace, sin. So Satan is at work in the world through making it think it can solve all of her own problems, all these faith issues. We can just figure it out ourselves. Do you long for spirituality? Then follow your inner voice. That's the thing that's going to guide you. Do you long to be successful? Then be as competitive and cutthroat to get what you want. Do whatever it takes to be at the top. We are offered, as Jesus was, the desires of our heart and what the world values. And little do we realize it will lead us to wrath. There's a great old book about this uh, called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It was written by a Puritan named Thomas Brooks. And here's what he says about, this is how Satan deceives us. Satan's device to draw the soul to sin is to present the bait and hide the hook, to present a golden cup which has hidden in it poison, to present the sweet and the pleasure that may flow into the soul by yielding to sin and hide from the soul the wrath and misery that is certainly following the committing of the sin. 
Satan offers you the world and all of its glories and pleasures. And when you take it, it leads to death and destruction. And he wants it for every single one of us. And it doesn't have to even be the world. C.S. Lewis, in his great book, The Screwtape Letters, even talks about the way to really get somebody, especially the, the very proper middle-class English folk, don't have them go off and try to hit somebody off. Have them go down a gradual slope of apathy, laziness, selfishness, and the slope will go further and further and further towards hell, and they won't even know they've been on a decline until they're at the gates. There's one final way that we are deceived, and that's by ourselves. Paul wrote, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, we're deceived by our own sinful desires and passions. And notice here that it covers the whole person, body and mind. Before believing the gospel, the Ephesians and us, and Paul's throwing himself in here, we're slaves to these passions and desires. They arise from within our own sinful hearts to rebel against God. The word Paul here uses for passions is, is almost always connected with sin, but the word desires is a little bit more neutral. But given this context, they're, they're both describing something inside of us that longs for and wants something wrong and sinful, and that will lead to destruction. And it seems obvious to us that our bodies would be part of that, right? We do sinful things with our bodies. But many today think about that only when it comes to sin, right? Sin or doing wrong is only in terms of action. It's not so much in terms of what I'm thinking about. But the Bible here is saying it starts in your heart and your mind. What you think and desire can actually be sinful even if you do not act on it. The word he uses is dianoia. It describes the process of reflection and thinking. It was well known to the ancient Greeks. Plato actually gave a def definition of the word. He said, the converse of the soul with itself, without speech, is what we called thought, dianoia. But the mind is so fallen into sin, which is why in Romans 12, Paul says, renew our minds. Don't be conformed to this world, but be renewed in your mind. So sin is not just action, it's the thinking, the scheming, the desire to perform it. And this is what Jesus preached. There's a commandment that says, do not murder. Jesus says, well, if you're angry with your brothers and sisters, you call them names, you speak badly of them, you have committed a sin and are liable to judgment. There is a commandment that says, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust in your eye, you have committed adultery. And we see that again in the way the world wants us to think, right? About things like the rampant use of pornography, which has increased amongst women and still skyrocketed amongst men. You will hear people that say, well, it's not adultery. It's something else. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not cheating. The Bible would say differently because you are lusting. You're perverting something and somebody else for your own selfish entertainment. To sum up this important connection between the fact that we don't just sin in what we do, but even what we think, uh, one of the great church historians summarizing an English reformer's uh, theology of sin put it this way, that what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The mind doesn't direct the will. The mind is actually captive to what the will wants. 
And the will itself, in turn, is captive to what the heart wants. Where our heart is, where our desires are, will move the rest of us, body, mind, and everything. And if it is not focused on Christ, it will be focused on sin. And we, who were dead in sins, could not escape this, so we were destined to become children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This leads somewhere, and it's tragic. Earlier I said that by nature we were the sons of disobedience. It's the state that we were born into because of the consequences of the fall. So here too we see that the world is by nature children of wrath. Who's wrath? It's God's. Having gone through the awful conditions and descriptions we just described, are we shocked that there would be a punishment for this type of wrongdoing? Believers usually aren't because we've come to terms with that, but others are certainly shocked that there would be a punishment for this type of behavior, especially just because it's what the world valued. It's what I was told to do. It's what I was deceived to do. It's what I wanted to do. How could I be punished for this? J.I. Packer summarized God's wrath this way. He said, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. That's why Paul says the wages of sin is death. So as I hear the bells letting me know that I have gone very long, I'll summarize and close with this. All of this for you gathered here that have confessed faith in Christ and that are about to come to this table, this is the way you were. Thanks be to God, it is not the way you are. Next week, we'll get into what if I'm still doing bad things and believe that Jesus has saved me? There's a whole other thing for us to discuss about that, and we'll get to it called the grace of God and sanctification and glorification and holiness and all those other good things. But the truth of God's word to you today is that this was your life. It is no longer your life. For those of your friends, family members, loved ones, that don't know him, this is their life. So take the opportunity to present Christ to them as the only one that can free them from the enslavement of sin, the only one that can free them from the world telling them what to do, the only one that can free them from themselves is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, thank you that your word is filled with warnings and cautions of sin, warnings and cautions of following our hearts into wickedness and pain. Your story of redemption is is filled with examples of this. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from it. Thank you for not just saving us by pulling us out of a dangerous situation, but having already been dead, you raised us to life, and a life now filled with glory and promise and holiness. As we come to your table, may we cling on to those promises to pursue you and love you with all our heart. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.